we're excited to have uh, our next speaker, Dr. Judy Levison. And uh, she's an OBGYN doc who um, originally from the Northeast, but roamed out West to Seattle area for training and then worked in private practice for a while and then got recruited to Houston uh, several years ago where she's been on faculty at Baylor and very involved in the HIV populations. And I'm particularly excited because she's gonna to talk to us about today about something we don't hear about very much, but everyone asks about, and that's what about breastfeeding? It's done in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's kind of at least historically been discouraged um, among women with HIV uh, at, uh, in postpartum period. So uh, really pleased to have you here and give us an update on this. Thank you, Mike. Well, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Carolyn Chu, who's in the audience, who had, I volunteered this morning to back me up in case my voice goes out during this talk. Um, and I want to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to share with you the latest updates uh, and perspectives on breastfeeding and HIV. No disclosures. Um, and I hope by the end you'll, you'll know a little bit more about the risk of HIV transmission via breast milk. And we'll understand some of the motivations that uh, people have when they choose to breast or chest feed. Um, first of all, I want to um, give a note saying that I may use breastfeeding, chest feeding interchangeably. When I say breastfeeding, please also hear chest feeding. Uh, and also research that has been done in the past on this topic investigated primarily cisgender women. And so results are reported as women. So I wanna give you a little bit of history uh, going back to the 1990s about what we do know about breastfeeding transmission. Um, first of all, just in terms of perinatal transmissions, um, that, and when I say that, I mean um, transmission during pregnancy, during labor and delivery, um, without talking about breastfeeding. Uh, once upon a time, the risk in the, US, in the US was about 25%. And then in the mid 1990s, somebody got brave and said, let's dare to give that AZT stuff to pregnant women. And the um, transmission rate dropped to 8%. It was a 60% drop, which was dramatic. And then in the early 2000s with the rolling out of antiretroviral regimens, it got down to less than 1%. And the evidence we have now is um, that um, somebody who um, um, is on ART and has an a consistently undetectable viral load at conception through pregnancy and at delivery, um, zero transmissions among over 5,000 mother-baby pairs. So um, my first question to all of you is the risk of HIV transmission via breast milk from a breastfeeding person on antiretroviral therapy with a consistently undetectable viral load is 16%, 10%, 5%, less than 1%. Okay. All right. Um, so majority of people chose less than 1% and um, 
um, I second that. And that's part of why I'm here today. So what is the um, HIV and transmission rate through breastfeeding? What, what is the evidence that we have so far? Before there was treatment, the risk was about 16%. So a baby born without HIV who acquired HIV during breastfeeding um, had about a 16% risk. And that's a little higher than we really want to encourage. Um, but what is the transmission rate with good antiretroviral therapy? And the majority of studies, or really all the studies, um, have been done in uh, low resource settings. Uh, and I'm going to just run through a few of them to give you just the, the core of what we are um, basing our current recommendations on. The first is Keisha Boro, and this was giving maternal treatment while breastfeeding. And women who were maintained on triple therapy until the cessation of weaning at usually about 20 weeks had a lower risk of HIV transmission to their babies. It was 5.4% 5, 5 compared to um, mother-baby pairs where um, the mother did not get ART and the baby was just given basically a, a little bit of prophylaxis in the first week. And that was 9%. And so significant difference in, so treating the mother seems and seemed to, to make a difference. Um, so that was, okay, step one. Um, the Mabana study, which was done in Botswana, looked at maternal treatment while breastfeeding. And they used three different regimens and um, they came up with, and they also followed viral loads uh, intermittently. And they came up with a 1.1% risk and, um, but you can see that people were not completely suppressed. I mean, some they were using also some of our older measures of what was undetectable. Um, more women got to less than 400 than got to less than 50. So still not our completely ideal population. And the BAN trial said, okay, let's compare giving mothers antiretroviral therapy or baby's prophylaxis while breastfeeding, one or the other. And, and then there was a control group that um, where um, the babies just got one week of prophylaxis. And at six months, the uh, HIV incidence was 1.7% in the, those babies who had consistent infant ARVs. 2.9% where the maternal, there was maternal antiretroviral therapy and 5.7% in, in the controls. And there is no statistical difference between the 1.7% and 2.9%. So it looked like, huh, you keep the mother on medication or you keep the baby on medication, hmm, not too bad. And so in 2010, in 2010 WHO um, based on these studies came out and said to, to countries, you, you country pick which program you want and either go with option A, which was uh, treat the baby or prophylax the baby or treat the mother. And that was option B. And what most African countries have done is gone to option B plus. And B plus is where basically the mother gets put on antiretrovirals during pregnancy and stays on for life. And then the, the one other question that has come up, and you'll see a little later why I bring this up, is 
Um, should babies also be on prophylaxis while the mothers are being treated? And um, there was no difference in HIV acquisition among the babies um, given placebo versus six months of nivirpine if their mothers were on ART. So it didn't seem to add any value. Um, but infant prophylaxis did decrease uh, acquisition of HIV if the mother was not on ART. And so this has been interpreted in a number of different ways, though the perinatal uh, guidelines panel has chosen to, say, to interpret it as there's really no benefit from prolonged prophylaxis um, for the baby if the mother's on ART. The one other question that has come up and that we really don't have a full answer to is because people said, well, can't you just check the viral load in breast milk? Um, you can. And what you're checking, if you're checking a viral load in breast milk, is cell-free HIV. And that we can get down. But there's also proviral or cell-associated HIV. And the question we have, and we really don't know for sure, is are those particles infectious or not? So you can find it in some breast milk. And there's one Canadian study um, where they, I mean, this was just one case where they were looking and they found some proviral um, DNA, but it was just like little pieces of it and nothing that was really infectious. So that's the other thing that has made people in higher resource countries a little hesitant. So where are we in 2022? So we know now that, that it was 16% transmission uh, via breastfeeding without ART. And then with the ARVs, well, we got, you know, it was uh, one to 5%. But in 2017, the PROMISE study was published and has really now changed a lot of how we look at breastfeeding. And th what they, they followed viral loads more consistently than previous studies. They showed a 0.3% and 0.6% transmission at six and 12 months. So three per thousand at six months, six per thousand um, at 12 months. So not zero, but very low. And among some of the cases where there was transmission, there were two cases where the mothers, one, they, they did not have optimal suppression by the time of delivery. And one of the questions came up as well, they were suppressed just at delivery, but then, um, but hadn't been before, if they'd been suppressed longer, like most of our women are, would that have made a difference? And so they, again, it wasn't completely opt an optimal scenario. And then the one other confusing piece for all of us has been Prior to ART, so 1990s, um, Anna Katsudis looked at babies that were breastfed exclusively, babies that were formula fed, and babies that received mixed feeding. And there's a lot of question about what mixed feeding meant. I think many Americans, and I originally thought this meant alternating formula and um, breast milk, but I, we, we have since found out that sometimes actually solids were being given and baby gut is not really ready for solids. But what they showed in that study was that exclusive breastfeeding was better, there was lower transmission than if you did this mixed feeding. 
which is not exactly intuitive because you think, well, if you're mixing, you're getting less HIV exposure. Um, there are two theories on this. And one was that um, a baby drinks formula. Formula is not completely physiologic. It may irritate the gut. And then you chase it with HIV infected breast milk and the HIV gets in through the portals of the gut. The other theory was that no, it had to do with the maternal breast. If you're not consistently breastfeeding, you're gonna have engorgement. If you have engorgement, you're gonna have inflammation. And if you have inflammation, HIV is gonna go there. So we just weren't sure, but nobody has done or probably will do um, a repeat of this with ART. And so we have no idea if this is even relevant to 2022. So to date, most national guidelines have recommended exclusive breastfeeding in low resource countries and exclusive replacement feeding in high income countries, true or false. And I think you're gonna get this one, so I'm not gonna wait really long. Yes, and, and yeah, and so that's actually a majority, um, that is true. And um, that's part of our quandary in, um, in high resource countries, like hmm, um, where do we, why, are, why do we, is there this discrepancy? Um, and as one African woman said at a conference, she stood up and she said, why is my breast milk worth more in Africa than it is in the United States? So until recently, um, there've been no studies in high resource countries. And we had always assumed that lactating parents with HIV would formula feed because in the United States, Canada, Europe, um, formula is accessible, feasible, affordable, safe and sustainable, also known as AFAS. So, that was, that was number one. And then the other question has come up, well, why can't we just rely on the African studies? And I think as many of you know, um, the data and the conclusions may not be generalizable, um, meaning that a measure of how useful the results are in one place may not completely apply somewhere else. And you really don't know if they're generalizable unless you do the study in some of your other places. So I'm gonna give you just, this is a composite of um, many patients who were the ones who taught me that this was an issue in the United States. And 15 years ago, I mean, most of us just said, oh, in the United States, we recommend, you know, we just, we say you shouldn't breastfeed, end of discussion. So 32 year old, originally from Nigeria, uh, was diagnosed with HIV during her current pregnancy. During prenatal care, she communicated to her obstetrician her desire to breastfeed. She feared that not breastfeeding would raise suspicion in her community of her HIV status. And it's in our culture, we breastfeed. And if I'm not breastfeeding, it's the equivalent of waving a red flag with HIV on it. And stigma, we may have stigma in the US, but stigma in the African community is a lot higher. Um, I had one woman say to me, you know, if I don't breastfeed, people will guess and I will have to move because no one will allow me in their homes anymore. And certainly no one will allow their child to play with my child, even if my child doesn't have HIV. 
So um, she had heard and read so much also that breastfeeding was better for her baby, boosted immunity, fewer allergies, less obesity, fewer infections, and also for her, um, less diabetes, lower rates of breast and ovarian cancer. So um, after talking with her OB, she um, then also talked with a uh, pediatric ID person and who reviewed the risks and benefits. And um, she was really relieved, first of all, to be able to air her concerns. Um, and then knowing she had options, she felt she, you know, she could come up with a plan that fit for her. And what she opted to do was to breastfeed for three months, both to prove to her community that she didn't have HIV, um, and in response to public messages that breast is best. And her baby remained HIV negative. So this is just one common example. Um, and we have a fairly high immigrant population. So they were really the first ones to make me start thinking about this. But there are women of many other racial and ethnic groups who are increasingly expressing a desire to breastfeed. So why doesn't everyone just want a formula feed? What's, what's the problem? And you know, we'd always assumed that formula was just so easy to get and you know, affordable and everything else and safe. And um, some of that has recently not been so true. So we have cultural norms as this woman um, illustrated. Um, there's better infant health with breastfeeding. There's better maternal health less hypertension, less ovarian, less endometrial, um, less breast cancer. Um, there's the bonding with infant issues and um, accessible and safe uh, very recently have uh, shown not to be so true in the United States. We had the formula shortage and I mean, and women were scrambling to try to find formula. And when they found it, they often couldn't afford it because it was in short supply. People could raise their prices. And the other was contaminated water in the United States. Yes, Flint, Michigan, um, and Jackson, Mississippi. So suddenly a lot of people are saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't wanna have to deal with that. And um, Mariel Gross, um, who's an OBGYN and bioethicist, I think has said it very well. Uh, current recommendations against breastfeeding likely further disadvantage already disadvantaged women and infants, largely due to existing socioeconomic and racial disparities. Unfortunately, minority women suffer disproportionately from, uh, from diseases breastfeeding may prevent, such as obesity, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, depression, and female cancers. And so here we are starting with um, already um, a lot of disparities I mean, within our population of, of women with HIV and low-income populations. And are we just exacerbating some of those problems? Very relevant to what Dr. Rana was saying. So the question that, uh, comes up, does U equals U? Um, well, preconception, yes. You know, if you take your antiretrovirals, undetectable viral load, you protect your partner. During pregnancy, we now know really no risk of transmission if you are consistently, you have a consistently undetectable viral load. So then the postpartum and breastfeeding, and that's where we cannot yet say U equals U, um, but each individual really needs to do their own risk benefit assessment. So there has been, there's evidence of increasing interest in breastfeeding in high risk resource countries. 
um, 93 clinicians who provide specialty care who were surveyed in 2019 um, said that they, uh, they one third of them said that they were aware that women in their care had breastfed. Um, in Germany, the numbers have been going up. And um, a group of residents at UCSF just um, this year presented uh, results of a survey that they did with US-based providers. They had 100 respondents. And 42% of the respondents said that they had cared for someone who had breast or chest fed. And I, when I first brought this up to one clinician, this is probably about 10 years ago at a conference, somebody came up to me and whispered, we've had three women who breastfed, we haven't dared to tell anybody because they were afraid of li you know, liability issues. So what uh, the group at UCSF um, looked at um, is the, the seesaw is looking at um, patient, really patient-centered care versus paternalism. And um, that, that's the things that, that clinicians struggle with. And um, that on one hand, I think we're moving more toward the patient-centered, um, but we have come from a, a paternalistic model and also a medical liability aversion model. And um, I think we have focused a lot on absolutely no transmission being the only thing that we look at and none of the other factors. Uh, and then the National Perinatal Hotline has been um, keeping track of their calls to the 24-7 uh, perinatal hotline. And as you can see on the right, um, the number of calls that have um, included a question about breastfeeding is now up to 25%. So this is, as someone said last night, a hot topic. So in the perinatal guidelines, you may recognize this format, um, are in flux. And just again, some history until 2015, um, basically said no breastfeeding. In 2015, we were allowed one sentence, which was individuals may face environmental, social, familial, and personal pressures to consider breastfeeding despite the risk of HIV transmission via breast milk. In 2018, an entire section was added. And we are in the 50 millionth um, version of the, what will be published in January of 2023. And for the first time we have um, dovetailed with the pediatricians and so that their guidelines and ours will fit together. And the new focus is really going to be on shared decision-making. And so what evidence do we have so far? We have three cases reported from Canada, um, 10 from Baltimore, 13 from Italy, and just recently 30 from Germany. That is it. Um, so, um, and then the other big question has come up. Pediatricians understandably have been very uncomfortable because this is not how they were trained. And so some pediatricians, including ours, have opted to give uh, nevirapine prophylaxis throughout breastfeeding. But again, the guidelines are going to get, I think we'll be moving a little more against it, but again, they're guidelines, they're not rules. And you have to honor yourself and do what you feel most comfortable with. Um, we are in the process, um, this has been about five years. We have eight to 10 um, sites where we have been trying to collect information from the US and Canada. Um, I'm hoping by the end of this month, we will have 50 um, infants to report on or mother baby uh, pairs to report on. 
And we're just really trying to establish a baseline. What are the reasons that women choose to breastfeed? Um, what are the current practices among the OBs and the pediatricians about the um, you know, prophylaxis or not? And how often do they check viral loads? And um, who are good candidates? Um, how often should we be checking viral loads? And things like that. And so um, one of the big questions I think also will be come January is how do we reach clinicians and parents about changing thoughts on uh, breast and chest feeding? So um, these are just questions we have. And if you have other questions, please uh, let me know because there's certainly, there's, there has been talk about go, doing some um, qualitative studies. So again, talk more about to, to women about how they make these decisions and doing some prospective studies and creating a national registry. And that's it, thank you. So we have lots of questions. Um, so maybe quick answer, quick response, we can get to a bunch of them. The first thing is you talk about um, cases you've seen where you do have uh, transmission of HIV during breastfeeding. We have not seen any. Okay, uh, thanks. I think, uh, well, uh, John Brooks will be talking next, but I think when it's ever happened that I've known about, it's been for women who got acute HIV oh. during okay. breastfeeding. Different story, different story. Yeah, yes, well, no, and we've had three, we, I'm aware of three just in our population of women who, one woman knew her husband had HIV, but they really didn't talk about it. And um, the other two did not know that their partners had HIV. They, the women acquired it um, postpartum, and we know that the susceptibility to acquisition is greater in the third trimester and postpartum than someone not pregnant. And so acute HIV during breastfeeding, high viral load, transmission to baby. So I know the next, after the break, um, we're gonna have uh, John Brooks come back from CDC and talk more globally around prevention. So maybe he can talk about testing women and their partners or what, you know, how people are thinking about that. So um, another question uh, that came up a couple of different times is among people that are actually taking care of perinatally infected children, mm -hmm that just the pain and suffering of that, how do you balance out if it's 1% mm -hmm. against that lifelong, well, including the guilt of the mother? 0.3%. 0.3%, 0 0.3, whatever the rate might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if, what, if what, what that rate would be, no, how, do you, how do you balance? Is three out of a thousand mm -hmm. worth breastfeeding? I right. guess is the question that's being asked. And, you know, and that's where I think the, you know, we have to in include the person who is, we're trying to help. And um, it's just, there's so many factors that play into it. And for, for some women, this is just, this is, I'm not a real mother unless I do this. And, and also the risk in the high resource country may be lower, but we don't, won't know until we look at this a little more. And so in your clinical practice, a woman has mastitis or has, blood in the breast milk, like what do you do at that moment in time? Like what, what, what anticipatory guidance do you give women who are going to be doing this in okay. that regard? And um, so with mastitis, we, uh, what we recommend is um, breastfeeding from the other breast, pumping from the um, affected breast until that is healed. And one of the questions that has come up, and we've been very vague about it in the guidelines in the past, but I think we're, we are this time gonna be more specific. Talking to women in the community of a breastfed, almost all of them have given their babies formula at some point or another. They may not have talked about it, but now they're starting to, now that their babies are fine. And that in reality, probably that's okay. And so 
I think that is where we're going and just we're, we're trying to face reality, not just pie in the sky. So you're talking about mixed feeding. And so mixed feeding and again, but not solids, but um, intermittent formula. And so do you counsel women about not introducing solids or how to introduce oh, yeah. solids? Yeah, in terms I mean, the of pediatricians this, are- Yeah, but in terms of this particular risk then? Um, I think, yeah, our pediatricians definitely do. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and has anyone ever looked at the difference in terms of um, with this mixed feeding between women, uh, babies that were vaginally delivered versus babies that had a C-section because you might have different gut micro yeah, microbiome? Yeah, yeah no, we, we, somebody study out there. <laughs> um, there was a couple of questions about the studies that you showed about breastfeeding where they had this control arm and was that ethically done at that time? Cause it didn't seem like that would be something you would have yeah, thought I mean, was at equipoise. Right, right. I think at that time it was, I mean, yeah. Yeah, we probably wouldn't do those now. Right, but at the time there was enough equipoise yeah, that it was considered so. ethical. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so I guess there were a lot of questions about um, how often, and you said those are those are questions you can't answer. Like, how often do you then check the viral load of women who are breastfeeding? So we're recommending every one to two months. I mean, and in reality, I mean, we're probably doing ours about every two months, but some people feel more comfortable with the every month. And then there were a series of kind of medical legal questions about how you manage in terms of the documentation and the chart, you know, as if you're making this recommendation, what the response is in terms of your legal setting, medical legal issues. And um, we've kept, we have not involved our legal department. Some places have. We have an agreement. It's not a consent form and it's not a contract, but just something, it's really a checklist we have discussed that you know the, we can't say zero transmission i you know i understand i should be exclusively breastfeeding i understand that if there's you know any change in you know my in my health i'm going to let my doctor know i understand i need to have regular viral loads done and so there's like about 10 points and um and this way it's a document that shows that we've discussed it because we i can think of one woman who arrived in labor and delivery a patient of mine and she'd never had an undetectable viral load and way back and early in her pregnancy we said well when you get to undetectable we'll talk about breastfeeding we never got there and she announced to the resident she was going to breastfeed and um it was like whoa 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 you know and so at that point we started using this document so that there's something there one place where it came in handy that i had never expected was um Child Protective Services has been called on some women in parts of the US who have breastfed. And one of my own patients went to WIC to get some food supplementation, mentioned she had HIV, she was breastfeeding and the lactation consultant said, oh, I can't talk to you today. Let me get back to you. And the next day, Child Protective Services was knocking on her door and, um, she pulled out her agreement that was signed by her, by me, and by the pediatrician. And the Child Protective Services worker backed off. And I, two days later, called and talked to her and said, I understand why there was concern. But, um, and one of the things that will be in the new guidelines is that calling um, Child Protective Services is never uh, an appropriate response to this. It may be appropriate for other kinds of problems at home, but not this. Okay, another question or two, actually. 
Um, what do we know about the safety of antiretrovirals in breast milk first? Okay. And then the second one, is there a registry of these babies that are being breastfed? Okay. Um, so safety um, appears safe because we, um, in Africa, I mean, we have women on, uh, for years on a number of different regimens and the amount that goes into breast milk, it varies some by the drug, but is very small. Um, and then in terms, no, there is no registry. Um, any of you with CDC um, connections, um, maybe can put some pressure there. Um, and um, we are very interested in doing that. And so once we get our 50 babies published, I think we, that, I'm hoping that'll be a next step. Okay, great. Sorry, we're just running out of time. Um, thank you so much. This was a great and provocative discussion. I really appreciate it. Okay.